And welcome to this end-of-year Taxpayer Talk special. It's a chance to reflect on the political and economic year, but also to look ahead now that we are just days away from the start of election year 2023. I'm your host, Peter Williams, a board member of the New Zealand Taxpayers' Union, fighting for lower taxes, less waste and more accountability. Joining me are my board colleague, former Finance Minister Ruth Richardson and Taxpayers' Union Executive Director Jordan Williams. Let's reflect first on a quite extraordinary political year. I think my overall highlight is that the centre-right finished the year leading in the polls. My worry is that if National and ACT do form the next government, they won't actually undo fully the legislative programme proposed to be in place by the time of the election. I also think back to the latter months of 2019 and early 2020, the time equivalent to this before the last election, and the Nats under Simon Bridges were actually leading in the polls. Then came COVID and the rest as they say, is history. Sadly, some of it is still to be made. Ruth, we'll go to you first. What was your political or economic highlight of 2022? Well, I wanted to start with lowlights, but let's uh, then uh, surprise on the upside. Uh, For me, the highlight was that the electoral tide turned, uh, that the um, basically the Labour government lost the room Uh, But I think on the issues basis, because it's issues that have really uh, galvanised the opposition uh, to uh, Labour's what I call constitutional vandalism, I think the the ability of the taxpayer union to take quite a technical issue that originally was around pipes and how you fund them and turn the three waters opposition into high political noon where the mainstream punters got it They got the assault on suffrage and democracy. They got uh, the appropriation or misappropriation of property. Uh, And it was really a window on all they found wrong about Labour. And they turned that sentiment into a popular tide that is now carrying the the centre-right over the line, certainly as we in 2022. So, Jordan, do you see it that way as well? You were driving the Taxpayer Union uh, Three Waters Roadshow back at the start of the winter. Some huge crowds for those uh, functions, particularly in the the south of the South Island. Did you see then the tide turning uh, away from what had been a COVID-dominated government? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you two have obviously been very heavily involved in our planning for next year, and I reflect on 12 months ago, the we were taking what we thought was a considerable risk and really focusing our efforts on the three waters because we knew that our opponents would try to paint us as something we are not. I think the lesson was, you know, leading with the economics in a way that the Taxpayers' Union is able to probably better than some of the more race-based focused um, or constitutionally focused organisations worked. Um, Peter, you're certainly right. There was huge turnouts on the Three Waters Roadshow, although in the Deep South that was um, largely due to your good self. Uh, I had that down as my highlight for the year. 
both um, one of our smaller events, but I found just incredible. We had about 40 people and the mayor turn out in a small town. I think it was called Fairley and um uh in in the south island on a very cold sunday afternoon and you turn up and there were a couple of interns with me and uh i you'd sort of wonder if anyone's going to turn up and then you have a great event and a couple of people came up to me and said oh, i've been chipping in a small amount every few months and um pleasure to meet you and and it's those small moments that really keep you going there's a real highlight but in terms of policy the, the real highlight of that was actually the change in tone of the national party literally from week to week through that roadshow. I recall in Tauranga, which was a big event, I think we had 590-odd in the hall, and we heard the Three Waters spokesperson get up and give the same speech uh, that he had given at various other parts of the country, but there was a key difference. He said that the National Party would repeal Three Waters, yep, we'd heard that before, but that any replacement um, or indeed any public services, um, the National Party wouldn't be implementing co-governance um, in relation to just delivery of public services. Now, that was quite a change for the National Party, and I, I think it's very kind what Ruth said about, you know, that the, you know, changing the, the wave of opinion, but there's no point in doing that if the other side, um, you know, simply uh, governed with the same policy but with a different colour. So, that was probably my, my highlight, that, that change in tune from the National Party. What about from an economic uh, perspective, though, Ruth? We, we saw just in, in recent days uh, the GDP with a quarterly increase of 2%. Now, that's staggering. That suggests an annual growth of 8%. Now, I know we've had some low times. One might ask about the veracity of the figures, but a 2% quarterly growth rate is quite staggering when we're supposed to be on the verge of a recession, isn't it? What's going on here? Well, I, I think we're seeing a, a game of two halves. The fiscal position, uh, as is required under my Fiscal Responsibility Act, uh, continues to uh, depress, uh, where the government has continued to occupy what it calls the, the, the high ground of throwing public money uh, at you know very entrenched uh, problems that we have without solving those problems. So you've you've got on on the the, the fiscal side uh, not a pretty picture, but it's much much worse on the economic side. So you're just seeing what is the the, the tail end of that sugar hit that we had from the opening the spigot uh, per courtesy of of the Reserve Bank. Uh, and and the um, you know Grant Robertson's fiscal incontinence, so we've actually flooded the place uh, with finance, not worrying about the bills uh, that we're going to have to pay down the track. And as a consequence, you're likely to see uh, activity, but it's artificial activity, uh, and all of the serious money unfortunately is on a recession. Even Adrian Orr says this is a recession we have to have. Uh, so we're heading into recessionary times. So that's that's just before uh, the the economic activity that result is just before they take the uh, the punch bowl away, as it were. And we we're now going to have a dreadful economic hangover. Did you think that Grant Robertson should have renewed Adrian Orr for five years, another full term? Uh, bearing in mind that well, the the office seems to have become incredibly politicised. 
far more so than in well, previous governments. Yes. And, and that's the pity of it. Uh, you know, I uh, remember very well what happened when monetary policy was a political football and Muldoon played it uh, to electoral perfection. So you'd have a huge splurge on the monetary policy side. Everything would look good, would cause you to say, oh, look at that figure. That's pretty good. We better vote for these guys again. And then we'd have the hangover. And the Reserve Bank Act of, of 1989 was really a landmark piece of, of economic architecture for New Zealand where we sought to make the central bank independent but accountable. So that independence has been assaulted in many ways by this government, most importantly making the Reserve Bank complicit uh, in their, their, their big sugar hit approach to uh, COVID and what followed down the track. Uh, so the, the 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 greatest sin of of the Reserve Bank has been complicit to the government's political demands. Uh, now, in terms of the appointment, uh, I think you either appoint an individual for the full five year term or not at all. I, I would not be playing around with the tenure or the the, the time of the tenure. Uh, I'd be making an unprincipled decision about. Uh, is this particular candidate fit for office? And, you know, I, I know that early on uh, in our regime, um, when I held those reins, we did appoint Don Brash uh, earlier because I didn't want his appointment to become a political matter. Unhappily, uh, Adrian Orr's reappointment has become a political matter, but it's it's just one of a whole litany of, uh, I think, uh, abuses of central bank independence. So, Jordan, would you imagine under a centre-right government that Adrian Orr's contract might be ripped up and he would go early in his five year, second five-year term? No, that, that can't happen um, without some sort of serious misconduct from Adrian Orr, nor should it. Uh, I think that the error was actually squarely at the foot of um, the governor in that he is widely perceived as being more political than most, and when I say political, I I mean sort of playing the politics of the day as opposed to the independence of the mandate. Don Brash was arguably political, but he was political to, in relation to holding the government accountable. It wasn't sort of playing along, if that makes sense. You know, right now, um, you know, we've had this year's budget. Uh, Grant Robinson gave himself a $6 billion operating allowance. That means for new spending. When I think Bill English, uh, in effect, ran zero budgets or perhaps his largest one was one or one and a half billion. You know, that if we had, when I say that Adrian's played politics, it's the fact that while he is tightening, he has been pretty muted in his criticism of the government that has been continued to uh, play fast and loose with fiscal policy at a time when very clearly the economy is, is overheated. I'm very interested in, in Ruth's comments just then that, uh, that she wouldn't have played with the length of the reappointment. But the fact that the opposition, and not just the opposition, mainstream commentators were criticising, mainstream economists um, were, were criticising uh, openly Grant Robinson's reappointment. That actually says that Adrian hasn't read the room right. 
and uh, it was wrong to reappoint him. Well, no, the, the other point of view is that what does New Zealand want? Stand back from this individual actors and individual errors. What does New Zealand want? We want economic ambition and we want serious course correction. Well, uh, what we're getting from Adrian Orr now, belatedly, is serious course correction. Of course, he's part of the problem, uh, but he's putting his hand up and saying, um, Your Honour, I was an error, uh, and now I'm going to really rimp uh, the official cash rate to the point where the recession will try and bring all of this back to some level of, of um, sustainable sanity. Uh, but I think the broader issue is there are no serious plans, certainly not from the government, and the opposition is only flirting around the edges with this. Uh, ACT is the only party that started to put forward to New Zealanders uh, that face up, take stock, course correction, uh, and this is what it's going to take if we're going to be able to reach our ambition of you know, strong growth, full employment, great education system uh, and, and prosperity. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's wrong just to single out a particular actor. I think the overall setting has become so distorted by COVID uh, that there's been nobody except David Seymour brave enough to stand up and say, this emperor doesn't have any clothes now. It's not fit for purpose. And this is what uh, a new setting looks like consistent with that ambition for growth and prosperity. So what that, you're saying... That might be true, but, but that, 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 that might all be true, Ruth, but the, just coming back to, the, uh, um, to this particular reappointment, we've got a bank that is not no longer widely respected. It has had huge staff turnover in the C-suite. Mm -hmm. it, it's also had huge staff turnover in the economics advisory uh, wing. Uh, we know ourselves of uh, economists that have upped and left. Uh, it is, you know, it is a shadow. It, it's no longer an organisation that young economists, you know, are desperate to work for because it is, is a centre of excellence. And that's that before. That does come down to the individual. And that's before you uh, look at some members of the board who have been appointed this year as well who on the surface, frankly, don't appear to have the necessary experience qualifications uh, to be members of the Reserve Bank Board, particularly when they have to be on monetary policy committees, Ruth? Well, we've seen a big degradation uh, of the institutional standing, that's for sure, uh, in both the Treasury and in the Reserve Bank. Uh, and th th that's what I mean by, you know, we've got our, our root cause analysis tells us that there's been that degradation. The policy settings on both sides of the street, fiscal and monetary, are completely out of whack with where New Zealand needs to be. Uh, and so this is much more than the appointment of an individual. It's about the rehabilitation uh, of the effectiveness uh, and drive of those two critical macroeconomic institutions. Well, it's going to be some time before there will be any change in direction, if indeed there will be a change in direction, because we have another 12 months of this government, and one presumes that things are going to continue travelling in the same direction until uh, the next election. 
and then there might be a change. But, Ruth, do you think that by that time things might be so bad that an incoming government, if in fact it is a centre-left government, will have no option but to tighten the screws and, and put the country into some form of austerity? And you know what that means, because you've been there and done that. There will be a huge outcry from the left and from many in the mainstream media saying people are going to go hungry, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Well, my, my optimistic scenario is that the um, the centre-right players really grab the initiative, uh, take take the economy and its malaise by the scruff of the neck and make it the election issue. They've already got the momentum. Uh, the government's lost the room. They've wrecked the economy. Uh, and I don't believe you can win office uh, in the face of, of economic wreckage. Uh, and so it will turn on the ability of Christopher Luxon and Nicola Willis and David Seymour. I think those are the, the triumvirate uh, that can reshape the economic narrative next year so that we don't have this dismal conversation about um, the big A, uh, austerity, um, but we, we have a conversation as, as, as a country, have a political conversation around what what are the, the big steps we need to take for course correction? And my counsel to incoming ministers of finance, and I hope it will be David Seymour, is you're not going to be the minister of finance. You're going to be the minister of reform. So let's hear about that reform program so people can get a, a real sense of confidence ahead of time uh, that the course correction, when it comes, is going to pay dividends for the country. Really interesting you put it that way, Ruth, that you are backing Seymour to be the Minister of Finance because I, during the course of the year, have uh, been at some functions with some high-ranking National Party MPs uh, and I've been impressed by some of them, uh, not so much that I would necessarily vote for the National Party at this stage, but certainly there is no feeling amongst those senior National Party MPs that uh, anybody but Nicola Willis will be the Minister of Finance. But, Jordan, uh, let's come to you on this because this is a really key appointment if there is a change of government after the election. Uh, if if on current polling it's a 35% national, 12% act, that's a third of uh, the Cabinet uh, should be from uh, the ACT Party. And surely with uh, 33% of uh, the vote of an incoming government, you're almost entitled to have somebody high-ranking to be Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, would you not? Yeah, the National Party don't think like that, though. You know, <laughs> I know they don't. That's the very obvious. Is, is an, is an, yeah, the, the, the National Party is, is an institution that, um, I mean, one of the worry, real <laughs> worries I have, and um, I thought that... Uh, that <laughs> The, Callum's observations as an outsider and having run election campaigns in Scotland, he was quite astonished with the what he considered a real lack of effort with the recent Hamilton by-election. He, when we went to that debate, he said, does, does electioneering in New Zealand simply consist of waving signs? I can't see any policy that's relevant to Hamilton that's been released or any great drive from the National Party wanting to win? Is it just that they uh, feel so safe that they expect to be able to coast on in? Well, uh, that sort of sums up how 
I really worry about the election next year, that if that arrogance is allowed to sink in, there could well be a surprise. I mean, this time in the cycle in 2004-2005, most expected Don Brash to win that uh, election. Uh, but in terms of, you know, post-election, the Nats are in power, it will be, unless Luxon really wants to put the foot on the gas and deliver quite a reforming government, in which case it makes sense to have Seymour there, both in terms of his intellectual capacity and background as a think tanker and doing a lot of work around um, economic reform, and also to provide some distance, um, not 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 completely, but a little bit of distance between uh, himself and economic reforms, then it makes sense. But I get no sense of that sort of reforming hunger from either the National Party or Mr Luxon. Well, but Mr Luxon said uh, in his um, sitting in Santa's lap interview uh, at the end of the week, uh, that he was going to be bolder than John Key. Well, um, let's That's raise... That's a pretty low threshold, though, right? <laughs> let's, let's raise two cheers to that. What do we want for three cheers? Look, let's face it. When the Nats are faced with the ability to govern or not, uh, then the venal instinct kicks in. Uh, so when, when I left, uh, I was replaced by two guys. One was called Winston Peters and the other was called Bill Birch, and they carved up the portfolio so that Winston, in theory, held the prime role. And if Christopher Luxon is presented with a case where acts do constitute a third of the centre-right using Peter's calculus, thanks, Peter, uh, then um, David Seymour is going to be the, the, the lead man. So does that mean that he he has um, so much leverage that he can insist on it? Would, it be a, would he go so far as to make it a deal-breaker, do you think, Ruth? Well, he's he's saying that we just just don't want a, a change of government. We want um, real change in, in the policy settings, and he's right. Uh, and to do that, the pivotal position—I mean, that the the leader is the crowd pleaser, uh, and that's Chris Luxon's role. Uh, and in the engine room sits the Minister of Finance and the uh, AKA the Minister of Reform. Uh, so that that that, in my view, is is the obvious way to play it out. Um, Nicola Willis is is a very political operator. Uh, there are many spheres in which she might deploy her considerable um, political talent, uh, but in the really hard uh, course correction work in the engine room, uh, I think you've got to have somebody who's thought about this really deeply before the event. And David what, Seymour is the only one who's who's exhibiting uh, those characteristics. What do you mean by that, Ruth? When you say that. Because I agree, Nicola is is very skilled. But you say there's many spheres for her to deploy it. Do you do you mean that she could have her eye on a bigger prize? And is it possible to be able to deliver reform if you are hedging your bets to want to become leader one day? Uh, yes, because if, if you make a success of your portfolio, then that's the best uh, ticket to ride, isn't it? Um, and finance tends to define politicians. Some make it to the top, some don't. But, you know, first and foremost is, is doing that really stellar job uh, in finance. That's what matters. That's a reward in its own right. I mean, look, if I was looking at the broader scheme of things, there are three areas that, that really want 
high levels of attention. There's the big leadership issue, what matters to this country, what kind of country are we? Every time we slaughter and slay somebody, every time somebody gets their fingers chopped off or a child is killed, I mean, is that the kind of country uh, that we need to be? I, so you need the leadership, the ambition. It's not just economic uh, ambition. It's got to be social uh, ambition for this country. So you, you, that, that's what you need in spades. You need the economy to be in the best possible running order, which is going to take a hell of a lot of rewiring uh, of that economic diagram, and that should be a David job. And the other one that's absolutely crying out is education. Education is the biggest, biggest policy scandal in this country uh, is the failure of our education system. The stats before our very eyes uh, are, are just you know, showing up in all sorts of ways, which is not just ram raids by kids that don't bother to go to school, uh, but our overall level of attainment. So in terms of resources and results, education is an abject failure. And if I was Nicola Willis, I, I'd, be, I'd be saying I'm going to be seen in time as the architect of, of basically uh, powering up our education system. That, in my view, is as much a political feather you want in your cap as powering up the economy. Somehow, though, Jordan, education just doesn't swing it with voters. It's because, I guess, kids at school don't vote, even though the Green Party would like them to. Uh, and a lot of their parents don't really know what goes on with their kids behind the classroom door. So that's why somehow education never seems to move the electoral dial, the political dial, uh, something I find quite extraordinary, especially when you see these charts almost week after week that show our levels of attainment are getting worse and worse. Why don't we get yeah, well, education uh, as an issue, Jordan? Well, our polling will suggest that not many people rank it as the mo their sort of key voting issue. I think as a as a parent, you do through that as your kids go through that stage of life. Uh, I mean, the the New Zealand Initiative have done a heck of a lot of work in this area. Uh, the TU Education's done a little bit of work around health productivity, for which we um, had limited success giving the media to take any notice because that's also a a scandal. If you, um, if we could go up to just the average in the OECD for health productivity, I think it would be the equivalent of adding a third more to vote health in terms of um, in terms of money going in. In terms of education, though, what the initiative tell me is that yes, it's it's very scary, but something that's particularly sad is New Zealanders have to aim a bit higher for young Johnny because the problem is is that if too many parents think, well, if young Johnny's happy, you know, that's enough. Um, or if, if young Johnny's doing good at sport, that's enough. Well, actually, the statistics say something quite different. We are in a state of crises. The the only one that seems to be getting some mainstream attention is the fact that um, kids aren't going to school. You need to be there for a start. But even once they're there, a once world-leading education system over the space of only really... 20, 30 years is, is, is quickly tumbling and we need to take it seriously if we are to remain a first world economy. I mean, what we had the, the Prime Minister of Finland here recently and instead of the asinine concentration by the media of don't you look uh, young and, and uh, photogenic female Prime Ministers, for God's sake, you look at Finland's approach to education. Absolutely laser-like focus, small country, remote, 
They know what they've got to do to leverage uh, their human capital. And boy, are they serious about education, uh, performance uh, and, and accountability. Uh, so, you know, th there are so many benchmarks. Instead of this, this absolutely superficial um, nonsense around, you know, who has the most stars in their eyes, just let, let's look at who's creating the new stars of the future, uh, which is the investment and the system behind that that, that drives that investment uh, in, in education. So Finland, Singapore, you know, small countries that aim to be internationally competitive. You can't make it without a world-class education system, and that we ain't got. With Finland, though, Ruth, don't they have much higher levels of taxation to, to fund it? Than we do. There's there's no there's no correlation between um, input and output. I say resources and results. You know, New Zealand should have a very very good education attainment. It was simply a matter of money. It's the incentives that drive the money. Good teachers get paid the same as bad teachers. There is no accountability for results in education. Uh, voice matters, uh, not performance. Uh, and so you know, people just exit. Um, a lot of people exit and and. Uh, secure different qualifications and a different teaching regime. Uh, but most of the country, like like um, uh, health, you've got a postcode lottery. Uh, and if you live in an area where the same amount of resources are poured into your, um, you know, lower decile area as in the higher decile area, we know what's happening in terms of results. It, 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 it's appalling. It's a scandal, and it's not a function of just, you know, if we up the resources, if we keep the current system, it's just huge wastage uh, in because we've got huge systemic failure in education. Do the producers run the show. Yeah. Do you believe the National Party are well enough aware of this, though, Jordan, if they're going to be the lead party in the next government? Um. Well, I'll, I'll, firstly, I'll take your bait about Finland or or, or Scandinavia, because uh, having had, um, as Ruth has, um, spent a little bit of time sort of getting my head more around that. You know, I, I, and this is sort of as the Taxpayers Union has grown, we have more and more people of uh, of this view that I don't mind paying higher taxes if what I'm getting is world class. And what the Scandies have managed to achieve is. Yep, you can get, um, particularly in relation to income taxes, is high, but the quality of public services, almost without exception, is excellent. You know, do you you might pay high taxes, but you're going to get a pro, you know, competitive and private ambulance service. You know, when the when when the left sort of mock that sort of thing, you've got to take a little bit deeper look into what the Scandies are um, are achieving in terms of what the Nats. Um, Get it. I think it really depends on the the portfolio area. Uh, one of the problems the Nats have, of course, is they have very limited behind the scenes sort of advice and, um, and policy work or, or, or a policy shop. You know, the the Australians, for example, both the the, the centre left and the centre right get funding for their own sort of think tanks. You know, in in the UK, there is a whole suite um, of think tanks, both on the right and the left, as is the case in a, a lot of Western countries, in Canada, for example, and obviously the US. In New Zealand, we don't yet have that sort of culture. And in a couple of areas, I am aware where the Nats want good advice. I can think of um, 
in the area of, of RMA and planning, for example, but it's pretty hard to find, you know, the, other than sort of bumper sticker slogans, to find uh, organisations with the expertise and capability to really de deliver uh, that sort of wholesale work. Because Chris Lux and Nicola Willis, they've got as many staff as a junior cabinet minister. It's not much when you have to be over almost every area of public policy and with so many areas of public policy needing attention, that's pretty difficult. Right. John, John Key, John Key made a great address to the Taxpayer Union annual meeting, not the one this year, but the one before. I took notes and you know, he's, he's a, a, a very skilled operator. We can talk about his public policy legacy, but I thought his analysis was spot on. He said there have to be two things at work here, motivation and method. You can have the best motivation in the world. Say, we want a world-class education system. But if the method you choose is just to throw check more public money at the same failing system, then you're, you're going to be sold short. Uh, you're not going to get the result you want. And my counsel to people like Nicola Willis is pay attention to the method. Yeah, I hear your motivation. Of course you want the economy to be better performed or education better performed. But it's not going to come from the bully pulpit. It's not going to come from exhortation. It's not going to come from you know, rounding up all the public servants and giving them a nice speech. You've got to change the method, the method by which we deliver health outcomes, education outcomes, economic outcomes. And that's where I fear the Nats are not using their time in opposition, which is when you've got to do all the, the heavy-duty thinking. They are not, uh, I think, uh, showing us uh, that, that they are doing other than just let's do this job of delivery a little bit better. If I hear the word delivery once more, I'll skew on both the government's part and the opposition's part. I want to hear some serious uh, analysis uh, and alternative thinking around methods that we choose to deliver the most critical things that a society needs, of which a world-class education um, uh, uh, attainment is one. I mean, that's the passport to life, is a great education, whether you come from east coast of, of uh, the north or south island, doesn't matter where you are or in the Auckland grammar zone. Education matters. So let's hear some more original root cause analysis around why has the method failed us so badly. All right. A couple of quickies to finish off this uh, podcast, this uh, edition of Taxpayer Talk. Is it too early, do you think, to write off the left, Jordan? No, I don't think it is. Uh, I think that what we're going to see is a 2005-style election where the Labour Party go, after, go for the jugular of Chris Luxon and try to scare the electorate um, or paint uh, Chris Luxon in a way they successfully did with, with Don Brash. Uh, they are a formidable campaign machine. Uh, the Nats seem to be taking very much a, a sort of 2008 small target approach. And I'm not sure, how, you know, the sort of very vague um, uh, sort of brighter future type campaign. It's certainly what we sort of saw in, in Hamilton. But it feels to me a little more like a 2005 environment where Labour will be wanting to um, paint contrasts. Having said that, Labor's delivery or uh, has been so pathetic on anything bold. 
anything bold it does promise sort of will fail the credibility test. Um, but that said, um, as we saw on the um, abortion matter or, or even this week, um, or no, sorry, last week with Chris Luxon saying something which I didn't think that was offen- that offensive, saying that too many kids in South Auckland are sitting in garages and then, to my astonishment, apologising for causing offence. Uh, it, it does suggest that it could be the sort of um, untested under pressure or own goals um, that could well define an election campaign, which is such a shame because, boy, oh, boy, New Zealand needs some wholesale discussion on policy. Indeed. Uh, Ruth Winston, your old Batmire, is he going to make it back? Uh, well, what what is the best way to describe Winston? He's an electoral riddle wrapped up in policy contradictions. I mean, that's, that's been his DNA from way back. I mean, his high noon has been, I was a handbrake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was stopping other people doing bad things. Um, he's a spoiler. He's a political spoiler, and he's a hypocritical one at that. Uh, he'll catch in any wave that suits at the moment. Uh, it's, um, you know, I'm against apartheid. Well, hello, Winston. When I first met you in politics, you were promoting Ka Awatea. And Kaawatea was about creating parallel systems. Sounds a bit like apartheid to me, Sunshine. Uh, so, you know, he's got four minutes all bad. Uh, but, you know, he, he will only get oxygen if National and Act uh, are not showing a, a more compelling, um, if you like, opposition voice to Labour. I mean, Labour's got so many old go- own goals. I don't think that they can... Uh, prosper from a fear and scare campaign. They can chuck in maybe a um, family working for families credit tax sweetener in the middle, you know, that they've got the treasury benches, they can do that. I think sentiment is already cemented in. Uh, and it's again the government in a very, very substantial and visceral way on a whole host of issues. So it's it's the uh, for National and Act to make the running and squeeze Winston out. I mean, he's 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 useless in the body politic. He's entertaining. Uh, you know, he's he's the 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 kind who's given us, you know, sort of the Prime Minister Mark II. You know, let's sort of all style and no substance, all hat and no cattle. Uh, I think New Zealanders are after a serious set of politicians who've got serious answers to serious problems. And I don't think that Winston, if National and Act are doing their job. Uh, is going to get the oxygen he so craves. Jordan Williams, Ruth Richardson, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, Christmas edition of Taxpayer Talk. From the Taxpayers' Union, we wish you all a very Merry Christmas. We look forward to uh, an intriguing 2023 with a result at the end of the year which has some new people on the Treasury benches. This is Peter Williams for Taxpayer Talk. Taxpayer Talk.